I just want to start by acknowledging that we're getting toward the end of our first day together. <clears throat> I know for myself on the first day of retreat, I easily fall into one of two experiences and even though I've sat a lot of retreat, I can't seem to avoid one of these two. One is that I, at the end of the day, I'm very excited, have a lot of energy, just glad to be here. Want to hear what the teachers have to say, seeing other yogis who I know, hear the Dharma. So there's a lot of inspiration. There's something light uh, and buoyant about that. It's also really ungrounding, and I usually crash pretty hard the next day. And um, I have a tendency to slip into depression, and depression usually follows. And then the other experience I have at the end of the first day is I just feel completely wiped out. I have no energy and feel like really what I need to do is sleep. Um, Not much mindfulness, not much concentration. This also is not very helpful in the long run, but also for me, quite ordinary, quite normal. And really I think this is very much how retreat practice works. We end up at these far ends of one extreme and we learn how to regulate back to the center somehow. So again, as I said last night, uh, actually last night I welcomed you in whatever parts of you were here and however you were showing up. And that's true, I offer that welcome and invitation again, but also a reminder for you to welcome yourself, however you are arriving tonight. Not that your experiences should fall into one of those two categories that I mentioned, but uh, just recognizing where you are, what category that is, whether it has a name or not, and bringing some friendliness to it. We have, we have quite a, a ways to go together. I want to talk a little bit tonight about retreat very generally. Um, What is the etiquette, if you will? What is the culture? How can we think about this uh, path ahead together? And in some ways, what I do tonight, what I offer and share, might be a continuation or an elaboration on what Joanna shared with us last night with regard to taking refuge. I appreciated her explanation and particularly reminding us that refuge can be both an inner and outer practice. So to a large extent, tonight's talk is about the inner practice of refuge. And I'll also talk a little bit about mindfulness, a little bit more of an introduction to the four foundations, and I'll share a little bit about my own retreat experience as well. I hope that's uh, helpful to you in some way. I've always really appreciated retreat as a meditator right from the beginning. Um, I identified very strongly with leaving home and going away and having an opportunity to exclusively 
focus on meditation and learning the Dharma. And for me, uh, at least at the beginning, for the first, even for the first 10 years, the, the farther I could get away from home and the longer I could stay, uh, the better. Uh, it took quite a while to realize that though that was useful for learning meditation, uh, it also wasn't necessary and it was also for me hiding out. There was a quality of running from my life. Now it was good, I think, in hindsight that I ran to the Dharma, um, but it took me a while to see that I was avoiding something also. It could be easily a cliche or some kind of romantic idealization to say that what I sought in beginning this path of meditation, I found during a really long, really difficult retreat, far from home, uh, when the electricity ran out and I had no ability to contact people back in the United States and I felt really alone and really scared. And it just happens to be the case for me that the particular conditions that I was working with on that retreat did allow for uh, a surprising and new level of surrender that was as immeasurable as it was practical for me. After this one experience, I remember sitting at my desk, I had my own room very much like we do here, and I had taken a photograph of my mother and father, actually it had, they had dropped me off at the train station, and um, I had a photo of all of us together, and also my sister who had had a child, and I can remember sitting at my desk uh, looking at their photos and crying and making a commitment to uh, go home and uh, relocate all my stuff from Vermont back to Massachusetts where I would uh, take up residence near them, not in the same town, but, but quite close to them. And so this, this decision was uh, less about geography and more about something that was changing inside myself. It was, for me, choosing connection over independence and choosing closeness over isolation. It was, for me, choosing to be a son and a brother and an uncle over someone who hid out in meditation centers, which really was very much my, my plan, in fact, was to hide out in meditation centers. A friend of mine sometime afterwards said to me, it's okay, you didn't want to be a smelly monk anyway. So going on retreat over the years, I have felt that no matter how difficult it was and no matter how much suffering or difficulty or doubt I experienced on those retreats, no matter how elusive this dharma we talk about, I always felt that I was developing something meaningful simply through my effort. On retreat, I had the sense that I was both moving closer to the life that I wanted while simultaneously immersed in it. 
Currently, I find that uh, practice for me is taking very much in my home and close relationships at all these uh, even subtle or mundane thresholds of irritation and frustration and disagreement and, and not having things go my way. Though for me, I don't think this merging and integration of retreat and daily life would have happened without retreat. I'm quite convinced of that for me. This highlights, I think, one of the most mysterious elements of the path of meditation. It's not about the formal meditation practice. Yet without the practice, we can't see clearly enough to loosen the knots of our conditioning. It's not at all about the precepts. Yet the precepts become a mirror reflecting our temptations and habits, teaching us how behavior affects our mental states and how it affects others around us. As Suzuki Roshi said, you are perfect as you are, and you could use a little help. Personally, I don't think I would have been able to begin to see my whole life as Dharma practice without my prior and ongoing retreat practice. In many ways, for me, the Dharma has been a continuous unfolding of ironies. On retreat, I suffer and practice staying with my experience so that at home, I'm less inclined to run or hide or repress when things are hard. For me, uh, the difficulties are predominantly physical pain, uh, worry about the future, and a pervasive sense of not being good enough, not being lovable. Uh, the inner critic uh, is becoming less of a problem but still has a very loud voice. On retreat, I see the many ways I push too hard, judge myself too harshly, and resist the experiences I'm having. And over time, this gradually has allowed me to become more kind and accepting of myself. On retreat, I find stillness and quiet so that at home, I can better hold the noise and pace. And on retreat, I occasionally touch something closer to what the Buddhist tradition calls our true nature, so that at home, when I'm confused or afraid, I have a better chance of remembering that those mind states are going to change, that they do not define me with any finality, even if they define me in the moment. The overarching irony of this is that when this starts to happen, we don't see our whole life as Dharma practice at all. It's just our life. The people close to us become the Buddha, the people we work with, the people at the grocery store, at the gas station, they become the Sangha. And all of the circumstances we find ourselves in become imbued with the teachings. And when this happens, neither are we Buddhists. We're just human beings having human experiences. What remains is this life, one event after another. Experiences that we want giving away to experiences that we do not want, and vice versa. 
Sometimes it feels like something, something is happening to us and we suffer, sometimes incredibly. Sometimes we have more mindfulness, sometimes we have more equanimity, sometimes we have more kindness, and events move through us and we are more free, even if only for a minute or half a minute or five seconds. So reflecting back on my own retreat experience, there are three important things that retreat has offered me that were instrumental in beginning to feel more at home with myself and in the world. Number one, a sense of belonging. I simply felt more at home with people dedicated to practice. Somehow it made the world seem sane. Also, I noticed in that collective effort of people practicing together, something could be felt. The collective effort, the inertia of intention. And that I was buoyed by that somehow. It energized my own practice while it strengthened my resolve to participate in a way that maintained the integrity of the retreat for others. Even though we were in silence, there was a reciprocity and a mutual support. And in that, I felt connected. So retreat and sangha helped me balance, helped me begin. I'm reporting, I should say this if I haven't already, I'm reporting what retreat has offered or helped with and what it is still helping with. So this helped me balance a pervasive aloneness while feeling safe in a social environment that could easily have created too much anxiety. So retreat was very uniquely set up to help me at a time when most other kinds of communities or activities would have been uh, too threatening. Number two, a greater trust in the possibility of experiences that presented an alternative to depression, chronic tightness, contraction, and self-protection. You can see the relationship between the first one and the second one. In retreat, I found quiet, stillness, expansion, space, calm, and glimpses of trust, both in myself and in what felt like an inherent workability of my own life. And number three, a sense of agency. And we have to be careful about how we talk about agency in the context of practice. Specifically, I began to see that meditation practice, silence, precepts, washing dishes, were real tools that I could use to create change. The forms of practice held me and created a and created a container comprised of intention where what I did not understand about myself was equally weighted with the elements of investigation, namely questions and the resources to explore and address them. For me, at the beginning, the circumstances of retreat began to reveal that the path of meditation relied less on answers 
and on a new way of being in relationship to what was difficult and unresolved within myself. That this required of me certain actions, such as sitting and walking, reciting the precepts, lent itself to the feeling that I was cultivating something. And I could feel, however subtle and slow to develop, a trust that change was possible. With a certain kind of effort, I learned that I could have a positive effect on how I experienced my life. In hindsight, these three experiences revealed two things. One, rather than being free, I had a really long way to go. That there was such a stark difference between how I experienced myself and my life at home and on retreat made it very clear to me that I had a lot of personal work to do. And two, that retreat practice offered a very reliable way to do that work. One of my earliest insights was that I needed very, very particular conditions to feel okay. And I needed very, 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 very particular conditions to feel safe. And that often the ways I met the conditions my life presented me with resulted in me not feeling okay. So for all of us, the recognition of our own habits marks the starting point for real change. And we can nearly count on retreat to begin or to continue to reveal these habits. can almost guarantee this. So there are many ways that we can think about, talk about, imagine, foresee, retreat practice unfolding. One way that have, I have found helpful and which has been true to my experience is that of retreat being a practice of taking refuge and that of renunciation. In many ways, I see renunciation and refuge as the heart of retreat practice, if not all of the Buddhist path. So I wanna talk about these terms for a minute. Renunciation the formal rejection of something, typically a belief, a claim, or a course of action. This is a dictionary definition, right out of the dictionary. So something that we feel is true may not be, okay? So we're invited to be open to that. Renounce as a verb, and this is very strong language, refuse to recognize or abide by any longer, declare that one will no longer engage in or support, reject or stop using or consuming. So we may consciously choose to stop doing something we've done for a very long time. So again, there's invitation in this. And refuge a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. Something providing shelter or an institution providing safe accommodations. 
So according to Buddhist thought, safety is correlated with truth. That's ultimately how we arrive at safety. We see things clearly. And I think maybe there's a correlation here between renunciation, social justice, power, patriarchy, in that it is when we stop subscribing to the idea or ideas that certain people are more intrinsically deserving of equity, safety, freedom than others, change can begin to happen. Of course, it requires another level of action. So renunciation generally is to move away from something. Okay, move away from email, move away from reading, move away from talking, move away from alcohol, move away from sex. To take refuge is to move toward something or to abide, we hear this language a lot, to abide in or to dwell in something, right? So for example, metta is like the refuge of a shade of a large tree on a hot day. So you can imagine dwelling on a day like today, a really hot day, and some of you did actually, I saw you resting under the shade of a tree, right? So that's to abide in something that has some relative safety and comfort to the degree that we can be safe or comfortable. In the Dhammapada, there is a distinction made between two kinds of refuge, internal and external. And this is what Joanna had begun to talk about last night. The Dhammapada is a collection of short, pithy statements that uh, bring together the core Buddhist teachings and short stanzas that would have been easy to uh, memorize. They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to park and tree shines, people threatened with danger. They're, that's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from suffering and stress. So there is a certain level of refuge in changing our environment, leaving home, going on retreat. We've all done this. We all fall into this category. This is an outer refuge. It's necessary. It's part of the path. But if there's anything linear or sequential, this comes at the beginning. Okay? We take refuge in an environment and a set of conditions conducive to practice. Now there's also a shadow side to this. That's when aversion is mistaken for refuge. You know what I mean by that? Have, did, do, do any of you find yourself in the middle of the busyness of your life, sitting down with a friend for a cup of coffee, and you say, I've got to go on vacation. i got to get the fuck out of here. It's like, where are you going? Right? Same thing, you know. I have these conversations with people on the phone all the time. i got to go to retreat. <laughs> My girlfriend is driving me crazy, <laughs> right? So underneath the surface, what we're saying is, I've got to, I've got to get away from my life. And if we're really honest, there's a lot, and I've said this a lot, right? I alluded to this at the beginning. There's a, if we're honest, there's a lot of information in this for us. There's a lot of information. And for those of you who have gone on retreat, 
it doesn't work any, you know this, it doesn't work anyway. <laughs> I mean, you've essentially pulled up in front of a big screen, 72 inch flat screen, sat your ass down on a chair or a cushion, and you are stuck in front of that flat screen for the next, and it's only got one channel. <laughs> and that channel is your entire life. Everything that's happened and everything you want to happen or hope doesn't happen. And connected to that TV is a high-end audio system. And all your friends and people at work and partners are all talking to you and you're talking to yourself, right? And at the end, the credits roll and it's just your family. <laughs> all the people you know. And the worst part is, then you hit rewind and watch it all over again. Three times before lunch. You actually can't get away like that. So there's another level of taking refuge. But when, having gone to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for refuge, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, the Noble Eightfold Path. The way to stilling of stress, that's the secure refuge, that's the supreme refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So this second type of refuge is referred to as the supreme refuge. In this, Joanna referred to as the inner work of renouncing. This is the inner work of renouncing perceptions and habits that perpetuate dissatisfaction and suffering. This is plainly the development of insight, is the work of mindfulness. This is what we're here to do. This is the work of insight meditation. And it's a very practical task. And it's a very realistic goal. So, the classic rendering of refuge is to talk about the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which we also did last night. Say a little bit more about that. To take refuge in the Buddha is to renounce the belief that you are not good enough, not competent enough, and that being free of suffering is for other people and not you. Simply by making the choice to be here, you have set something in action, however invisible that might be right now. Cessation, the Buddhist third noble truth, the alleviation of suffering is not personal, it's universal. You see that? To take refuge in the Dharma is to renounce the idea that you can fully rely on what you already know. If that were true, you would be awake and free from suffering already. We might not have to even come here. To take refuge in the Dharma is also to relax. You are supported by a long, and in my view, extremely effective tradition of practice. You are supported by your teachers, and you're supported by one another. 
And to take refuge in the Sangha is to renounce. You can see that this one's pretty personal. To take, based on what I've already shared with you, to take refuge in the Sangha is to renounce isolation and dismissive tendencies to think that you can do it on your own while at the same time taking responsibility for your own practice. So when we do this together, we create something that's not only conducive to practice, but safe. A lot of the ways we talk about refuge and renunciation can sound moralistic or um, just plain rule-bound. Uh, it sounds like something often is being ex imposed upon us from the outside, the teacher, the tradition, the text. But if you can self-select in and see it as a set of parameters that provide a mirror to your own conditioning and a place to abide for a sense of safety, you might find that it provides a path to what you really want. Freedom from pain, freedom from suffering, freedom from worry, freedom from regret for the, about the past, concern for the future. Thai teacher Ajahn Lee said, Taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha on the level of inner qualities means reaching the triple gem with the heart through practice. So, he said, we have to develop these qualities within ourselves. Buddha Sati, I love this term, Buddha Sati. Mindfulness, like the Buddha's, is what wakes us up. Full alertness is what makes us correctly aware of cause and effect. The way to develop these qualities is to practice in line with the four frames of reference. This will enable us to reach the Buddha on the level of inner qualities. So this four frames of reference that is referred to as the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishments of mindfulness that we've introduced you to and which we will be walking you through each day throughout our time together. Ajahn Lee goes on to explain that to reach the Buddha on the level of inner qualities, we need to understand cause and effect. This is one way of understanding wisdom. If you say, well, what's wisdom? This is, in my view, one appropriate definition, understanding cause and effect. Mindfulness is the development of insight that leads to wisdom. So the first foundation or establishment or frame of reference is body. Vinny started uh, giving us instructions body this morning, give us some context. So at the level of body, we take refuge in the direct experience of the body. That's it. That's all we need to know in a certain way. We take refuge in the direct experience of the body. So sensations, breath, 
Vinny used the word intimacy. So there's something about direct contact, there's something about closeness. So we're not thinking about the body, we're not analyzing the experience in any conventional way. We're just allowing for experience to happen and we're meeting it with our awareness. Right now, cold. Right now, hot. Right now, calm and relaxed. Right now, anxious. Right now, restless. Or whatever it is. Right now, not wanting the bell to ring because the mind is quiet and I'm appreciating that. Body feels comfortable. Or right now, I want to run out of the Dharma hall. Right? I don't want to come back. Ajahn Lee says that this means being firmly mindful of the body, using mindfulness to wake up the body and mind, both by day and by night, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. We use mindfulness and alertness to be fully conscious throughout the body. This is the cause for reaching the Buddha on the level of inner qualities. So what is being indicated in the instructions for each of the four foundations of mindfulness is where to place our attention. In the first foundation of mindfulness, we take refuge in the body. When our attention wanders, we bring it gently back to physical experience. So we renounce distraction, we renounce dissociation, we renounce thinking about the body. We stay present to bodily experience and become intimate with the body at a sensory level. The second foundation is uh, in Pali, Vedana, feeling tones. Not uh, feelings in the Western sense of, psychological sense of emotions, but Rather, that the body is having experiences that are pleasant. The body is having experiences that are unpleasant. And sometimes our experience doesn't fit in these, uh, what feel like polar opposites, but something in the middle. It's not really pleasant or unpleasant. So to take refuge in the feeling tone of the body is to notice when the body is feeling pleasant, unpleasant and neutral, and to stay with that experience until it changes. And this is to recognize something unavoidable in the human experience. Our experience will change. This is fundamental to having a mind and body. Ajahn Lee says, to practice contemplation of feelings be mindful of each of the various kinds of feeling that occur in the body and mind. For instance, sometimes there's physical pleasure but mental distress. Sometimes physical pain but mental pleasure. Sometimes pleasure both in body and mind. And sometimes pain both in body and mind. So, focus in on being mindful of feelings as they arise, examine them closely. So being mindful of feeling tones 
we renounce a conditioned hierarchy. And this is really important for the development of our practice. We renounce a conditioned hierarchy. And that is the idea that pleasant experiences are better for our practice than unpleasant ones. And this can take, I'm just thinking about my own experience, this can take a very long time to get behind. And particularly if there's a real injury or a chronic illness, this can be very, very difficult to get behind. Uh, Pleasant experiences do feel better initially, of course, uh, but without wisdom, we are often left suffering in relationship to pleasant experiences because when we hold on to them, we contract, we stiffen, we tighten, and we don't allow for the natural movement of mind and body. And we're disappointed when we lose these pleasant experiences. The biggest loss is we fail the possibility of insight to be in touch with the natural movement Pleasant, unpleasant, more unpleasant, more unpleasant, pleasant. So bringing mindfulness to bear on pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences, we learn that it's the function of mindfulness that results in freedom, not the underlying feeling. And we can be mindful of anything So technically, we can go through any door to be free, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Waking up does not require that your immediate needs be met. The third foundation of mindfulness, or the third establishment, or the third frame of reference is mind itself. To take refuge in the mind is to know how the mind is reacting. And for me, this is a willingness to be honest about our own attitudes and dispositions. So ultimately, we take refuge in clarity and honesty. Ajahn Lee says, with regard to the first, wanting, the mind hankers after sensual objects and sensual moods that color it, making it intoxicated and oblivious to other things. This presents it from experiencing states that are brighter and clearer. He says, with regard to aversion, the mind at times gets irritated and angry, causing whatever internal goodness to deteriorate. Aversion is thus a way in which the mind destroys itself. And with regard to distraction or overthinking, delusion, absent-mindedness, forgetfulness, mental darkness, misunderstanding. So 
Being aware of our mind in this way, we renounce delusion because we are seeing clearly and are willing to be honest about what we find. Specifically, we renounce our preferences, ideas, concepts, and beliefs, particularly regarding what we think we need to be happy, as well as many of the ideas we have about what it means to be having a good meditation. We could say that we take refuge in awareness itself over having things go our way. This is the ultimate refuge. We could say that we take refuge in awareness itself over having things go our way. And I think if we dig deep, we know this. We don't actually want or need things to go our way. We actually just want to be happy. But we're putting a set of criteria on that happiness, and it continues to fail us. In a sense, that's the whole Dharma, right? The talk's over, done, let's go home. Like, that's what we're doing. But we have to see it so many, I have to see it so, I'm still doing it. <laughs> and I'm giving the talk. <laughs> like, I'm still doing it. And I haven't taught retreat with everyone else at the front of the room, but I advocate strongly for retreat, and some teachers don't. I advocate really, really strongly for retreat. Ajahn Lee says that these states of mind arise from preoccupations concerning what we like and dislike. Same thing. If you have mindfulness watching over your mind with every moment, it will enable the mind to awaken and blossom to know the truth about itself. So the fourth and final foundation, dharmas. To take refuge in dharmas is to abide in whatever mental quality is arising in the moment with, and this is specific to the fourth foundation, with a wide angle view or vision. Okay, and we'll, we'll guide you through this more experientially toward the end of the week. Now these qualities show up in lists under the four, under the four foundations. And in the fourth, they tend to fall into two general categories, wholesome or unwholesome. This language, wholesome, unwholesome, is fairly traditional and can sound really moralistic. I like, uh, for wholesome, I like helpful and healthy, and for unwholesome, unhelpful and unhealthy. The point of being mindful with a wide-angle view is to see clearly what has arisen, its cause, if we can, and sometimes we can know, and its outcome. So the, the, the reason, the logic for being mindful with a wide-angle view is to see clearly what has arisen, its cause, and its outcome. You know, the Buddha basically said, observe behavior, and if it leads to suffering, don't do it. Observe behavior, and if it leads to well-doing, 
allow for those conditions again, which is usually through some kind of practice, some, some restraint of something, some not doing something, or doing something we've learned is skillful or helpful. So being mindful of all mental qualities, we take refuge in impermanence. Renouncing the delusion of a permanent identity or thing we can call ourself. What we see is that nothing that passes through awareness, nothing at all that passes through our awareness can be manipulated, recreated, or controlled. Because this insight relaxes our control, the mind begins to settle. There's a natural progression. It becomes more calm and stable. Our concentration deepens, giving rise to mind states that are conducive to the development of meditation. It's actually really natural. In other words, we initially are instructed to recognize and abide in both wholesome and unwholesome states. But this is strategic in that it allows us to begin to see what we can do or often, and I, I think more often than not, stop doing in order to facilitate wholesome states and renounce unwholesome states. So specifically, the hindrances uh, like ill will, doubt, aversion, worry, they start to dissolve, or at least their, their power weakens. And sometimes they, sometimes they go away, they're going to come back. Uh, but the mind, as the um, teachings are sometimes translated, the, the mind can be secluded from the hindrances. When we hear this, this is not a reference to a yogi hiding in the woods, secluded from other people. The mind is secluded, separate from these unwholesome, unhelpful, unhealthy mind states. And what begins to arise naturally is concentration, joy, equanimity. So much more generally, we renounce control and take refuge in what is happening right now. In, in our culture, this is not the norm, right? We tend to associate happiness with getting what we want and being able to control our environment. If we get more of what we want, we'll feel better about ourselves and about our life. But in a Buddhist approach to well-being, which is much more psychological than material, happiness is found in shortening our own long list of wants and desires and in attaining experiences of contentment that are less reliant upon external factors. Something we learn as our practice is developed is that we gain a certain kind of control only by giving up some of our usual ways of controlling ourselves, others, and our environment. Through this process, we purify our mind and heart through three modes of action. One, body. This is how we act. Two, speech. This is how we communicate. And three, mind. This is how we think 
and how we relate to our own thoughts. In all cases, in all cases, we renounce greed, hatred, and illusion as we learn to take greater refuge in generosity, kindness, and wisdom. And ultimately, we renounce tanha in Pali, the second noble truth, the unconscious root cause of disturbance, stress, dissatisfaction, the persistent inertia that forces us out of the present moment, the only place where we are truly awake and free. You can feel this in your own experience. It's so hard to stay with the experience we're having. It's so hard to stay in the present moment. We're going against everything we've learned how to do. We're trying to retrain the mind that has been jumping out of the present moment from the beginning, right? The mind actually, to a certain extent, doesn't want to stay there. It's got a whole other project and set of agendas. There's a Pali word meaning entering to stay, one of my favorite words, entering to stay. Uposata, such as to enter a monastery or a vihara, or a meditation center, or a retreat, Dharma Drum Retreat Center. Upasata conveys entering into a dedicated practice for a set period of time. On Upasata days, practitioners leave home and go to a secluded place considered sacred to renew their precepts, offer dana or generosity, and participate in formal practices in a community setting. This is a very unique and precious opportunity that you have to be on retreat. I encourage you to enter and stay. Enter and stay in all the things you have been running from, avoiding, repressing, and ignoring. Enter and stay with whatever intention motivated you to sit retreat at this time in your life. It has at the center something pure and skillful. Enter and stay with yourself, with this experience, this moment, the next moment. Zen Master Dogen said, time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken, awaken and heed. Do not 
squander your life. In closing, again with Ajahn Lee. People who have done this experience nothing but an inner brightness and happiness in their hearts. For they dwell with the quality they gave, with the quality they have given rise to within themselves. They reach the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha on the highest level. People who train their hearts in this way have reached the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha on the level of inner quality. In other words, they have reached refuge in their own hearts. So, if we want the peace and security that the Buddhist teachings has to offer, we should all try to find ourselves a dependable refuge. As for refuge on the level of inner qualities, which will really be of substantial value to you, practice so as to give rise to those qualities within yourself. Thank you for your attention. We'll sit for just a moment. 